Uh, so turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 26, uh, starting from verse 16. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to you the Lord your God, as he promised. Our second reading from today is from Matthew chapter 5. So turn with me to the New Testament, uh, near the back of your Bibles, to Matthew chapter 5, starting from verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks so much that you are a God who speaks and gives, uh, reveals yourself and gives good laws and rules. These are your good laws and rules. So we ask, Father, for your Spirit's help in understanding and interpreting them and that you'll ultimately, ultimately help us to see how they point forward to your Son, Jesus Christ. It's not simply a matter of just obeying what is here. It's about understanding how it points forward to your Son, and then living through that. So we ask, Father, for your Spirit's help in understanding these things. I ask for your Spirit's help to help me to preach from this clearly as I ought. And we ask that all of this would be done for your glory and our living for you. In Jesus' name, amen. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. When you read that quote, what's going through your mind? Do you feel defensive? What do you agree, even to a small degree, that he might be right, that Gandhi does have a point? And it wasn't just in his generation, but Christians don't often have the best reputation in our world at the moment, do we? Why, why is that? Where have Christians gone wrong? It's not hard to pick examples of Christians behaving badly, is it? Christians who have failed to do what is right and acted for justice, who have failed to love their neighbours and care for them, who have, Christians who have claimed holiness but have acted in unholy and hypocritical ways, Christians who do not seem to follow Jesus with all of their heart and soul. I've, many, I've had many conversations with people, even in church, who have been burned or hurt by Christian relatives or even Christians at church who have acted in very unchrist-like ways. So what's the solution then? How do Christians live out properly what God has called them to be? 
Well, part of the solution is actually found in our chapters today, these big chapters of law. If you read through it, though, if you've, had, if you've ever read through Deuteronomy, if you've ever had any preconceived ideas about what the book of Deuteronomy has been about, then you've probably assumed that it was just a book of random and difficult laws, completely foreign and to modern life. Uh, but so far, the book has been quite surprising. Uh, the focus has been so much on the heart, so much on the need to respond to God by trusting Him and His goodness. And yet now we reach this famous section filled with these random laws and hard-to-understand laws. So a good question to simply ask before we work out you know, the answer to that original question. One question to ask is, well, how should we read the, these laws? How is the best way to interpret them? Now, probably the best way to understand these laws is to see them as an extension of the two great commands. The first command, to love God. The second command is to love your neighbor. Now, a few weeks ago, Pastor Richard showed us this slide. If we get there. Okay, he showed us, showed us this slide. Uh, and so he showed us that the Ten Commandments can be roughly split between loving God and loving your neighbor. Now, from Deuteronomy chapter 6 all the way through to 26, so we're talking 20 chapters here, or 21 chapters inclusively, you can sort of actually see the same division as well, where sections correspond with each of the commandments, as though Moses is expanding and elaborating on each commandment through this entire section. Now, it's not exact. Uh, there are some laws that overlap here and there, and then some laws that just simply defy categorization. But that's kind of like life as well. Life is a messy mix. But generally, you can see this pattern. Right? Having this in mind helps us to work out what's going on in the big picture. All of the laws in Deuteronomy seem to be an extension of the Ten Commandments, which is an extension then of the two great commandments. And that tells us actually something about how we should then read the law. Right? First, we need to notice, as, even as we read through it, that these laws are incomplete. Now, that doesn't mean they aren't perfect. So the psalmist in Psalm 19 says, your law is perfect. There, the psalmist is speaking of the quality of the law. But in terms of content, we know that they aren't complete because not every situation in life or circumstance in life is covered. And that's why even as you read through from uh, Exodus through to the end of Deuteronomy, every time a big chunk of law is given, you get this little narrative in between, a, a chunk of law and a narrative in between, a, a chunk of law and a narrative in between, because each of these narratives remind us that the law needs to be interpreted. It needs wise people to govern and judge and apply the laws in different situations. So the law itself isn't quite complete. And so that means we need to use wisdom to know how to apply the law. See, wisdom and the law go, are meant to go hand in hand. King Solomon is the great prime example of this, right? When he was obedient before God, and when he was humble before him, loving God with all of his heart and soul, he was then granted wisdom. But when he started to disobey God, when he turned his back on God, his wisdom left. He was unable to govern and lead his people properly, nor even his own family. And so this means that this means we need to kind of stop reading the law as a set of boundary markers, right? Uh, as though, you know, stay within these lines and you'll be fine. No, the encouragement of the law is to use wisdom to apply it, to ponder it, to 
use the principles of the Ten Commandments and godly wisdom to take what is there and to push further. Not in a legalistic way, but in a way that demonstrates wise living. Now, let me give you an example of this, right? So in your Bibles, read with me uh, Deuteronomy 22, uh, which is a section kind of expanding on the do not steal commandment, okay? So Deuteronomy 22, verses 1 to 4, that's what I love to hear, the sound of pages flipping, all right? Uh, Verse 1, you shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother, and if he does not live near you, you do, and you do not know who he is, uh, you shall bring it home to your house, and, you shall, and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him, and you shall do the same with his donkey or his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's, which he loses, and you find you may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. Okay, so you see that, right? Now, if you treated this law as just simply a boundary marker, then it would just encourage you to, in some ways, just do the bare minimum, right? As long as I take care of my neighbor's ox or property, I'm fine. I'm not stealing it. I'm obeying the law. But if this is an extension of the love your neighbor principle then how does the idea of loving my neighbor help me to understand what I could do with this law? You know, I could actually go search for my neighbor to bring back his lost sheep. I could get to know my neighbor well so that if his sheep goes astray again, I can care for it for him. I could maybe even help him work out why his sheep keep going astray. Maybe there's a hole in his fence that I can help him fix. You see, the letter of the law says, take care of your neighbor's lost property. But the spirit of the law pushes me to do more. And if Israel were doing this well, if they were doing that well, if they were taking the law and obediently applying it by wisely living it out, then it would show to the world what they were like. It would show to the world that they were a people of justice a people of legal justice. So let me give you some examples. Flip back uh, to Deuteronomy 19. Uh, Deuteronomy 19, verse 14. I'm just going to read the first bit of the verse, right? Deuteronomy 19, verse 14. You shall not move a neighbor's landmark. This is basically saying don't move your fence line, right? Don't steal their land in that way. Uh, or go to verse 15, chapter 19, verse 15, right? You've got an important criminal law principle here. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in, any, in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So here, here's an important criminal law principle. Proper and confident justice can only be administered when there is more than one witness. Right? More witnesses than just one. But the laws about justice are not limited to legal matters. As you go through these laws, you'll notice, dare I say it, that there's quite a lot of social justice. Now, social justice has a very political spin. Uh, that phrase, social justice, has a very political spin on it today. But here's what I mean from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. There are laws here in Deuteronomy that are concerned 
with the social elements of life together, laws that care for the vulnerable and laws that redistribute wealth for the benefit of the poor. So let me show you. Go to Deuteronomy 21, right, verses 10 to 14. Deuteronomy 21, verses 10 to 14. My subheading says marrying female captives, right? So here's this law to help protect vulnerable women. So Moses gives this law that says when you're in war and a man uh, may, may take a, woman, a captive woman to be his wife if he loves her. She must be allowed to mourn her family and then be his wife. But if he divorces her, he can't sell her or treat her as a slave. Okay, now, if you're a woman here, that probably sounds quite misogynistic. Right? But you have to remember the stark and the ugly reality of war, ancient warfare. Women of captive towns were not treated this respectfully. They were often raped or used as sex slaves. Moses says, treat vulnerable women with dignity. This is a matter of justice. The treatment treatment of these vulnerable women with care. Another example, I remember a few weeks ago from uh, the laws about debts and slaves. So uh, Deuteronomy 15, uh, I want to flip back there. Deuteronomy 15, we've got these kind of laws about the uh, kind of sabbatical year, debts, uh, slaves and freeing your slave uh, after uh, seven years, right? See, it'd be one thing to legislate that debts must be cancelled and slaves must be free, but... The emphasis in this section on these laws is on the social welfare of the slaves who have been set free. So have a look at verse 4. Verse 4, but there will be no poor among you. Or go down to chapter 15, verse 10. You shall give to him, to your freed slave, freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. You see again this emphasis on social justice. Now, all of that may sound very politically left. Right? I know there are people who have an active interest in politics here at church. And so it's worth remembering this, that the left side of politics, left side of politics and the right side of politics are heresies of the Christian faith. Now, heresy happens when you take one part of Scripture or one particular teaching and magnify it at the expense of everything else. That is why I say both the left and the right are heresies of the Christian faith. The left has often elevated the Bible's collective community values at the expense of individual moral ethics. The right has often elevated the Bible's values on the individual, but often at the expense of corporate and social ethics. The Bible doesn't just sit then in the middle of the two. The Bible actually holds these two together by focusing on God. Right? Social justice in our world is pushed usually by those who favor a bloated and prone to corruption government bureaucracy. Bureaucracy. Richard had a, a, a trouble yet last week by saying abominable. I, I kept misspelling bureaucracy. It's just a word that I just need spell check all the time on. Government, uh, social justice in our world is pushed by those who favour a bloated and prone to corruption government bureaucracy. But social justice in the Bible, that the Bible teaches here, is run by God. A God who loves his people 
who saves his people and who blesses his people. See, if God's people lived out these laws, they would be known as a people of far-reaching and wide justice. Overlapping with justice is often the theme of love, uh, love in the law. The way that Israel were to act demonstrated justice, but also profound love for their neighbor. So as an example, jump over back to Deuteronomy 24, uh, verse 6. Deuteronomy 24, verse 6. Okay. Verse 6, No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge, right? A mill or an upper millstone was a necessary part of life. It's, it's what, you know, you used every day to eat, to cook, and, to cook and to eat. So imagine if you owed me a debt, and as assurance, I took your oven, I took your stove, and then I took your fridge away, right? Now, there's some justice principles at work there, but you can also see how there's love for neighbor there to motivate that law as well, right? Or jump down to verse 10, chapter 24, verse 10. Uh, to 13, right? So there you've got, so let me read that one out. 24 verse 10 to 13. When you make your neighbor, uh, sorry, when you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you and it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. So here's the case again of collecting the loan from your neighbor. And Moses says, don't stand inside the house while you wait to collect it. Because there's this kind of menacing bullying tactic going on there, right? And if the man is poor, don't take his clothes off his back as part of the debt repayment. That's not treating your neighbor with love. And then there's that early example that we just went through in Deuteronomy 22 about the neighbor's lost sheep. If you're caring for their property, you're showing love for your neighbor. And if you love your neighbor, then you'll push beyond that law to engage with them and to ensure that their sheep doesn't get lost too often. Right? And then your neighbor also includes anyone who would interact with you. So not just people that you know on a personal level. So have a look at Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. All right? When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. All right? So that's verse 19 there. Same thing happens with your olive trees in verse 20 uh, and your vineyard in verse 21. Right? Now, when you're harvesting and you forget a bunch of stuff in the field, you can't go back and go get it, right? It was meant to be left there for the sojourner, the wanderer through your land who didn't have food. It was there for the fatherless and the widow who had no means of support to support themselves, and they could only pick through the fields for scraps after the harvest. So here's a principle of love. You could you, you did all of this in obedience to the law in love for your neighbor who couldn't provide for themselves. Or, you, you know, you could do. You could even go beyond this law and provide even more generously like Boaz did for Ruth when she was in his fields. If the people of God lived out these laws, then they would be known for their far and wide-reaching love for others. And they will also be a people of holiness. 
Right? Their uniqueness as God's people will make them stand out from the rest of the nations. Right? Part of their holiness was to maintain boundaries from different aspects of life. And so, again, uh, go back to Deuteronomy 22, uh, you get these kind of series of laws uh, about all sorts of stuff. Um, but these laws, and <laughs> I love how the, the, the title, they don't know what to do with this, the early bit. They say various laws, right? That's the subheading, right? Because this, these, these sort of laws are sort of an extension of the do not steal command. But the concept of stealing, extending the concept of stealing to just a bit more, and you'll find that it's, it's not just about taking someone's property, right? Do not steal as the commandment, as you think about loving your neighbor. It's not just about taking their property, but about respecting boundaries, right? And the idea of respecting boundaries lies behind a lot of what happens in this section. Respect those boundaries, and they will be seen to be a holy and set-apart people. So here's an example. You go to 22, verse 9 to 11. Okay, under these kind of various laws, kind of subheading, and you get a triplet of these boundary type of laws. So verse 9, you shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seeds, lest the whole yield be forfeited, the crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. Verse 10, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Verse 11, you shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. So you can see this kind of respect the boundaries law here. Right? Respect the boundaries in your fields as you sow your crops. Respect the boundaries with different types of animals you use to plow your field. Respect the boundaries of the cloth used for your clothing. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with wearing a cotton polyester shirt, right? But the law was again here for Israel to obey. And following all these laws would have made them thoroughly distinct from everyone else. And, the point, and point to the God who saved them and the God whom they serve. See, when you dig into these laws, you, you quickly find <clears throat> that following God required every single part of your life under his watchful eye. There was no space in your life that you could claim as your personal domain. Every part of your life, God would claim as his. So if the people of God lived out these laws, they would be known for being distinct and separated from everyone else. And so we jump down to the last few verses that we read out this morning and the conclusion to all of these rules in, in Deuteronomy 26. Uh, conclusion to all of these rules and laws. Now, it's hard to get excited by a bunch of rules, isn't it? Right? Uh, when you get a new TV... You just want to set it up. You don't want to read the manual on how to use it. I already know how to use it. Just let me get at it, right? When you start a new board game, you know, the hardest part of starting a new board game is sitting down to learn the rules, right? You just want to jump in and get in there. And who here is guilty of clicking accept on the terms and conditions without having read the terms and conditions, right? Rules are not exciting. We just want to get on with it. So it's tempting then that when Israel get to the end of these rules and these laws in Deuteronomy, that they kind of look back and go, all right, <laughs> done with that, don't have to look on them again. But then Moses doesn't let his people off the hook. Read with me again the final exhortation, verse 16. This day the Lord your God commands you to do 
these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. Again, again with the heart stuff. So it's not just that you have to come back to these laws and reread them. You have to take them to heart. They have to do them carefully, with all their heart and soul, with every fibre of their will and being. They have to meditate on these laws and live lives that wisely apply them, applying them to every single aspect of their lives. From the way they uphold justice legally to social justice for the poor and the vulnerable, how they go the extra mile in loving their neighbour, to keeping a close watch on their holiness and their distinctiveness. It is because in verse 17 that they have declared Yahweh to be their God. And likewise in verse 18, Yahweh has said that Israel are his people and his treasured possession. This new relationship between God and his people would be one in which they would live as he taught them to live, and he would be with them to bless them and lift their name high above all the other nations. So, go do likewise, right? There's a problem. There is a problem. The law is wide and deep. And when used with wisdom to apply it, we find that it pushes further into places and behaviours and attitudes that are just impossible to keep up. The extensiveness of these laws exposes a big problem. They can't do it. And it's not that they can't keep these laws perfectly, It's that they can't even keep them regularly. See, when you read through the rest of their story after Deuteronomy, they just don't have the inner strength to carry it out. No matter how much they may want to please God, they just can't do it. Obedience may be desired, but the flesh is too strong. You see, as wonderful as these laws are, as wonderful as it reflects the nature and character of God's justice and love and holiness, it exposes a big problem. The heart of God's people just can't do it. See, as much as the law reveals the problem, though, it also does not provide a solution. You see, the law is very much like the little dentist mirror. So you go to your dentist and you say, I've got this ache in my tooth, and they sit you down in the chair and they use this mirror to take a look and presto, there's your problem, I see it. You've got a big bunch of tooth decay, it's rotting your teeth, all right, exposed, we've exposed the problem. But then the dentist doesn't use that mirror to try and fix the problem. They don't use the mirror to try and tap on the tooth decay, and they don't use that mirror to maybe just try and shine more light on the problem, hoping that will fix it. And the law works that way. It exposes the problem of the human heart, but it cannot do anything about it. That's why the law in other parts of Leviticus gives the sacrificial system. When you fail to keep the law, God provides a means by which you can be forgiven and reconciled. You bring an offering, a sacrifice to cover for your failing. But even the sacrificial system had its flaws, chief among which was that you had to constantly bring sacrifices. And also, the blood of bulls and goats was not enough to forgive your sins. So what now? 
do away with the law? God cannot do that. That would be to deny an essential part of his own character. He can't deny the law any more than he can deny himself. So he can't do away with the law. What about we just ignore our sins, sweep them under the carpet? You know, kind of like how Asian people deal with conflict. Just ignore it, sweep it under the carpet, it'll be fine. But that would be to ignore his own justice and righteousness. He cannot let injustice and rebellion and sin go unpunished. What is needed is for the law's requirements to be fulfilled for us. What is needed is for someone to come in and to keep it perfectly on our behalf. See, have you ever wondered why Jesus couldn't have been born a Chinese person? Have you ever wondered why Jesus couldn't have been an Australian person born in 2023? Why did Jesus need to be a Jew? He needed to be born a Jew so that he could be born under the law, the law that was given to the nation of Israel, and so that he could fulfill the law's demands as an insider. And because he fulfills it perfectly... He takes away the burden of being under the law. You see, in the coming weeks, we'll see how weighty that burden is. And to steal a little bit of thunder from Jordan, don't tell him, sorry. To steal a little bit of thunder from Jordan's sermon next week, there is a terrifying curse for failure to keep the law. It is utterly terrifying. But thanks be to God that Jesus satisfies the curse. The law exposes the problem of the hearts of God's people and it points forward to Jesus as the only perfect law-abiding person. The onus is not on you or me to keep these Old Testament laws. Jesus has done it for us. So then, does that mean that the law is now completely done away with? That it's totally useless to Christians now? Well, remember what Jesus says in the opening part of his Sermon on the Mount. And he's come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So turn with me now to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the first gospel and the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. So this is Jesus. He's gone. He's started his Sermon on the Mount. And then he comes to this point in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He comes to live them perfectly out. And then he says this straight afterwards, verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Do you want to be least or great? All right? You want to be least or great? Depends on how you treat the law. Now, what is Jesus saying here at the end? Is he saying that the commandments and and teaching are still in effect? How does that work? I'm not a Jew. I don't need to prove it to you, but take my word for it. I'm not a Jew. I'm a Gentile. Should I just try to keep this law all over again? 
Well, not quite, not at all, not at all, because there's parts of the law that are physically impossible to fulfill, right? There's no temple, for instance, to offer sacrifices to anymore. And the Apostle Paul says that anyone who tries to live by the law is cursed, because you can't just pick and choose which ones to live by. You have to live by all of them. One of the guys was telling me yesterday that he's got a a friend, a Seventh-day Adventist friend, who says, no, you must not eat pork or, or prawns because it's against God's law. And I thought to myself, brother, have you read the rest of it? Pork and prawns is not your biggest problem. And do not touch my pork. (laughs) (laughs) What does Jesus mean then? We're in the Gospel of Matthew, so uh, jump with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? Which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You see what Jesus is doing here, how he's distilling the law? Love God. Love your neighbor. So does that mean we are back then at square one? All right, remember that diagram? I'm going to insert it in the next service, but that diagram, love God, love neighbor, Ten Commandments, all the laws then in Deuteronomy, 613 laws altogether in the Old Testament. Does that mean that we're back at square one doing them all again? No, not at all. Because remember, Jesus fulfills the law. He also removes the curse of failure to keep the law. The penalty is gone. And he has given his followers a new heart and his Holy Spirit so that we can respond and that we can obey. And then he has given us the church to help encourage each other through this. The law isn't gone, but Christ, in Christ, we are called to obey, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. What does it look like to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? In the past few weeks, we've been looking at that. It's about worshiping God rightly with everything in our lives. It's about listening to the leaders he places over us. It's about honoring him in our lives. What does it look like to love our neighbor? It looks like being a people of justice, legal and social justice. It looks like being a people who love and go beyond and above and beyond for others. It looks like being a people of holiness, where we love what God loves and hate what God hates. And it looks like being a people who love and obey God's word as we learn it together and as we grow in understanding it. Do you love God and love your neighbor? One of the easiest ways to test that is how committed you are to each other here. We love God as we worship, but even worship has a corporate element. And we love our neighbor. You cannot love your neighbor in isolation. And the first and chief way in which the first and chief people that we love are his people, God's people, the 
church. So do you love God and love your neighbour? How does that show? Christians have gained a poor reputation in our world. People who fail to be just, who fail to love others, who fail to live out what they believe. That's the reputation that we start with. But if we understand the law today, and if we understand it and how it points to Jesus and how he fulfills it and what he calls us to, to live under his law, if we understand what it is uh, calling on God's people to do and to be, then Christians might just gain back their reputation as being followers of Jesus. Hopefully they can say of us, even here at SLE, I like your Christ, and I like your Christians. Your Christians are so much like your Christ. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Where we would have failed so easily, you triumphantly obeyed. And you did it as our champion on our behalf, so that we don't have to fill every dot, every stroke of the law. You have done so. But then you also call us to that great and weighty task of obedience, of loving your law, to love your Father, to love each other. Help us to do that. Help us to wisely work out in the multiple ways of, of, and the complexity of life how we might do that for each other, that we might glorify you and praise you and honor you before our world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, the Lord's Supper is a time when we can take that word that we have just heard and remember it together and share this meal together. This is a meal for Christians. If you're not a Christian, if you in your heart can't say that you are a follower of Jesus, then don't feel embarrassed to simply not partake. The invitation that Jesus gives is the invitation that he, we've heard today that he is the one who has fulfilled the law for us so that you don't have to try and please God that way. So if you're not a believer or not a follower of Jesus, then he in, in, see that invitation of being forgiven and reconciled to God through trusting him. Now, if you, as the uh, host team, pass out the extra uh, communion elements for those who don't grab it, um, we approach this time and remember that we need to share this meal with a clean conscience. We can't take this meal unthinkingly in an unworthy manner because to do so would actually bring dishonor to God and potential judgment on ourselves. So in the light of God's word today, we should spend some time reflecting on whether we have desired to keep God's law, to hear him and obey him in all areas of our lives. Maybe we need to confess this morning the ways in which we have kept parts of our lives for ourselves parts which are unholy. 
Maybe spend a moment in quiet reflection. Knowing God's law touches all areas of our lives. Where are we holding back? Where are we stumbling in sin constantly because we are king over that space? Take a moment to pray through that. My friends, over the past few weeks, we've been praying corporate prayers of confession together. This tradition of praying corporate prayers goes back centuries in the church, and it's a, it's a wonderful way of reminding us that confession needs to be corporate as much as it is personal. So we have spent some time personally reflecting, but we need to pray this corporate prayer of confession together as well, asking God to help us as we think about our church gathering and the things that we must confess. So let's pray this together. Merciful Father in heaven, we, your church, come before you confessing our sins. We confess the ways in which we, together, have failed to keep your law, where we have failed to be people of justice and love. By our actions and inaction, we have dishonored your name. We confess our hearts and souls have failed to listen and obey. We confess we have failed to encourage each other or call each other to repentance. We bring these confessions to you, knowing you hear us and forgive us. In Jesus' name, amen.